some people are just so powerfully drawn to coupled life that they're not going to be happy unless they're coupled. We know that. There are other people who are equally powerfully drawn to single life. And coupled life to them does not compare. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, and today we are considering the much maligned state of singlehood. Much has been made of the research which tells us that as social animals, we are wired for connection, and therefore we are generally carrying a higher health risk, or we are going to be unhappy if we are single. So that isn't a very complete or accurate picture, according to our guest today. Bella De Paolo is a 70-year-old psychologist who has been described by The Atlantic as America's foremost thinker and writer on the single experience. She's devoted 30 years of her professional life to studying the state of being single, in addition to being happily single herself. Her new book, Single at Heart, has incited great interest, not only because the number of single people is growing globally, but also because it exposes many unfounded myths about being single. Our second speaker is Fenton Johnson. Fenton is a professor emeritus of creative writing at the University of Arizona. His most recent book is At the Center of All Beauty, Solitude and the Creative Life. Welcome, Bella and Fenton. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Okay, Bella, let's start straight away with you. What does it mean to be single at heart? People who are single at heart love being single and want to stay single. They are happy and flourishing because they are single, not in spite of it. By living single, they are living their best life, their most authentic, meaningful, fulfilling, joyful, and psychologically rich life. Psychologically rich. So are these yes. people not likely necessarily to be after making money and into all the money-making business? Because some of the research actually showed people, I think, in high school that were asked about getting yeah. married, really valued. Yeah. Mm. Well, you, yes. You, you so there was this great them. study that followed people from high school until they were almost 30 years old. And when they were 30, they asked them, um, what matters to you in a job? And the people who were married said, oh, they cared about pay. They cared about advancement. And the people who were single said they cared about meaningful work. And what was really interesting about that is that back when they were in high school and no one was married, they the people who would go on to stay single were already saying that they valued meaningful work. And the people who would go on to marry were already saying, I want money. Gosh, that's interesting. So your yeah. article in this month's Huffington Post challenged this whole notion of, I hate to use the word, spinsterhood, such an awful word. <laughs> Um, you have this community of single people on Facebook. So after the article appeared, that jettisoned up the numbers. So do you think it hit a nerve here? It did. And if I can, let me read a few sentences that you included in one of your initial announcements of this forum, because I think it really goes to the heart of the matter. So for people like me who are single at heart, the risk is not what we will miss if we do not 
organize our lives around a romantic partner, but what we will miss if we do. We would miss the opportunity to live our most meaningful, fulfilling, and psychologically rich lives by living someone else's version of the good life instead of our own. We would not get to be who we really are. And as you ask about the community of single people, this is an online community on Facebook of people who like being single. We talk about every aspect of single life, except the ones that everyone expects single people to be obsessed with, dating, trying to be trying to unsingle ourselves. No, no, no. We don't talk about any of that. We talk about um, our single lives, what's good, what's bad, what's challenging, what we love. And we talk about um, that's the inappropriate things people say about single people. And we make fun of them. And after that Huffington Post article came out, within the first couple of days, we got 600 new members. And I got about 100 emails from people saying things like, this was the first time they ever heard something like that. And they felt so validated by it. And it's true. I mean, there so many of the narratives about single people are what I call deficit narratives. They're all about, oh, you poor thing. And let me tell you what's wrong with you and why you're not as good as those awesome coupled people. And I think in, in stepping forward and saying, hey, for some of us, single life is our best life. And I have the data to show it. Okay. So speaking of data, what are the major findings from this 30 years you've spent looking at this topic, which challenge some of the common mythologies? Yeah. So let me just first list some of the myths that my research on single people, especially the single at heart, challenges. First, that we're sad and we just keep getting sadder, that what we want more than anything else is to not be single, that we're selfish, that we're lonely and that we're alone. So let me start with the alone one, because that's a big one. Single people are not alone. <laughs> On average, they are more connected to more different people than people who are married. There's research that follows people from when they're single to when and if they get married, and it shows that when on average, again, there are always exceptions, but on average, when couples move in together or when they marry, they become more insular. So they don't pay as much attention to their friends. They don't call their parents as often. And it's not just that they're in the initial thralls of, of crazy romantic love. This still is going on. Uh, six years later, which is long, as long as the study lasted. And it's not just people who have married people who have kids. Even if they don't have kids, they do this, this insularity thing. It's almost like they take seriously those song lyrics. Uh, you are my everything. I just want to be your everything. Wow. We've already got an, um, a question from somebody. If you're single and you desire having a romantic partner but are having trouble finding one, do you recommend changing your mindset to give up on this desire? If so, how? 
Well, I think that one way to think about that is to try out single life, try out the way the single at heart look at their single lives, which is to value your friendships rather than thinking about them as just friends, uh, to value the time you have to yourself rather than worrying about, oh, am I going to be lonely? Think about um, what you can get out of your solitude, what you can do on your own. And don't use your alone time to do icky stuff like chores or things you don't, you don't like to do, but use it instead to do what you love to do. And um, think about singlehood as an opportunity to do all the things you might not do if you were coupled. So try it out. You know, for some people, it's just not going to work. I mean, some people are just so powerfully drawn to coupled life that they're not going to be happy unless they're coupled. We know that. That's kind of the party line. That's the story we're always telling. The story I'm telling is that there are other people who are equally powerfully drawn to single life and coupled life to them does not compare. Okay, so you talk about you're not alone, you don't, I think some of your research shows that people that are single tend to be much more inclined to be in voluntary organizations, to be doing mm -hmm. outreach work with their family, with their neighbors. Yes. Yeah. So could you talk a bit about that? Right. Yeah. So there are several national surveys, nationally representative surveys that show that people who are single on average are more likely to be connected to more different people. They exchange more emotional, practical um, and support with friends, neighbors, relatives, colleagues. They are more likely to be there for people who need help with chores or um, rides to the airport or, or whatever, but they don't want to take Uber. And um, that single people are also more involved in volunteering for just about every kind of organization except religious organizations, married people are much more likely to volunteer for religious organizations. So I like to think of single people as having the ones. So people who are focused on marriage and coupling are all about the one. But single people on average are about the ones. And that can be an advantage. Okay, I'm interested about the whole concept that you and people like you that really celebrate the situation that you've carved out for yourself. It's not a situation, it's a life you choose. Yes. Um, I wonder if you might be wired, brain wired differently. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, that's great... on that. Yeah, that's a great question. And no, there's no definitive research on that. My sense from talking to people in great detail who share their life stories with me or more informally talk about particular aspects of their lives or the survey data from more than 20,000 people from more than 100 countries. My sense is that it's more than just a lifestyle choice. People who are single at heart are powerfully drawn to single life. Nothing else is as deeply, richly 
fulfilling to them a single life. And that sounds a little like hardwired, but yeah, I just I just don't know. And I also think it's it's a spectrum. So it's not like there's people who are single at heart and people who aren't, but there are people who tend to be single at heart and people who are mostly single at heart and people who are really single at heart. Okay, I absolutely have to jump over to Fenton with this because he's had such an exciting and rich life in Kentucky. You lived very close to the Trappist Abbey at Gethsemane. And so it was quite routine for a couple of the monks to show up for dinner. In fact, you remembered your mother dancing on the table at New Year with the monks in Johnson's household. And it wasn't till you kind of got older, you realized that this really wasn't just the regular old weekend activity at most people's house. So after which you left your small town and many adventures later, you ended up being in an intimate relationship with a partner who died of AIDS, I think in 1990. That's <clears throat> Tell us what happened after that, because you expected to kind of find another person and repeat the experience and that didn't happen. Yeah, I, you know, assumed that I would go through a grieving period. I wrote a memoir about our relationship called the geography of art and i moved on i i thought well there'll be a period of grieving one of the things that i learned another myth our society maintains is that grief is something that has a fixed period and then it's over and there is something in fact i think noble and the people that we love the, the most we grieve for all of our lives I'm not lost in that at all, but that person, that man, is still very much present in my life, as are all of the people whom I have lost in one way or the other. Anyway, I, I time passed, and uh, I dated around a bit, but after some period of time, there wasn't a relationship there, and I remember a day came when I, I'd done a lot of Buddhist studies, uh, and I typed out a note, and I put it above my desk saying, Embrace your solitude. And I came to that observation via the Buddhist because the Buddhist taught me that I'm not, we're not living for tomorrow. We're not living for a year from now. We're living here. We're living now. And what I have here and now is what I, is the only thing is available to me. And my challenge is to embrace it fully. So I said, okay, well, you here you are at that point, 50 or so. Let's see how this goes, you know, go to the museum because you want to go to the museum, go travel alone. Uh, that was one of the first things that I did. And I would say about being a solitary, that one does become, I think, more sens sensitive to the world because it's the difference between traveling the world with someone else that one is constantly in relationship with, which is a joy and a pleasure. But when one travels through the world alone, uh, and I've traveled to many strange and wonderful places alone, and some challenging and difficult places alone, first of all, one has to pay attention all the time, but also it's easier to pay attention because one is alone and doesn't have the necessity of, and the pleasure of engaging with another person. So these are not either or equations. I see them as both and. One can 
take joy in relationship with other people. One can also take joy in relationship with oneself. So I continue to do that. You're listening to Cambridge Forum's Single-Minded. Can you live a happy, satisfied life alone? Our guests are Bella de Paola, social psychologist and author of Single at Heart, and Fenton Johnson, writer and professor of creative writing. His latest book is At the Centre of All Beauty, Solitude and the Creative Life. You wrote this this piece, didn't you, for Harper's uh, quite a long, what, long time ago now, 10 years ago, Going It Alone, The Dignity and Challenge of Solitude. And you had observed the communal life of the monks that are single but living in community. And you kind of experimented. I imagine you lived in that situation for a bit to observe them. Well, I really grew up in a medieval life. I only know looking back, but I was over to monastery probably once a week. The monks were over at our house three or four nights of the week. I came to know the cloistered life really well. The well-known spiritual writer, mystic Thomas Merton, my mother would give him rides to the train station and she would argue theology with him while I would sit in the back seat. So there was uh, a uh, an introduction to that life um, from early on. Certainly, I came to understand that solitude was a necessary aspect of life. There is a quotation in the, it's the very end of my book from the playwright Christopher Fry, where he says, no persons are free who will not dare to pursue the questions of their own loneliness. It is through them that they live. So I'll take a second to, to unpack those words, loneliness and solitude, and also the word boredom, which comes up a lot. What one learns is that in em embracing that world, one um, grows into it. I've learned, I'm a novelist as well as a writer of creative nonfiction. I've learned that I need a certain amount of boredom for, I call it transcendent boredom, where I, I will make myself sit there. Don't get up, don't go do, don't go rake the yard, don't go clean the refrigerator. Stay there with the project at hand and interesting things come out of that choice, that active choice to stay there and be alone. A point that I make in my book is that the healthiest couples that I know are those who make a space for solitude in their partnerships. I had a discussion with my deceased partner once, right when we first met each other, not long afterwards, there were two events. And my event was in San Francisco. His event was in the East Bay. And he said, I don't know what we're going to do about this. And I said, oh, I know what we're going to do about it. You're going to go to your event in the East Bay. I'm going to go to my event in San Francisco. And at the end of the evening, we'll have the pleasure of show and tell. We get to, and, and he, he didn't like that at all, but he was a big hearted man with a good therapist. <laughs> and a year later, he came back to me and he brought that conversation up again. And he said, you know, you were right. We have a stronger relationship when we do things apart from each other, when we have lives apart from each other, and we bring those lives back together at times of our own choosing. So I think Bella, and I'll interrupt myself for a moment here to, to thank her for her work, <clears throat> because one of the things that I learned 
out of reading Bella's first book was <clears throat> when you read the data and when you read the studies, always look at the biases of the people who put them together because you discover that the people who write the studies that say, for example, that a child raised by a single parent is life it does not turn out as well. You learn, lo and behold, the people who did those studies were married people who had children. And there's a certain inherent bias to that sort of thing that it's almost impossible to get away from. At any rate, I write <clears throat> about solitude and how, and maybe to answer the question that came up at the very beginning of our discussion, how it is that one finds the greatest richness and wealth in solitude. I will okay, return so the compliment. I really love your work. And when I write about it for my psychology today, living single column or any other blog posts, it's it's always one of the favorites. Okay, I'm gonna bring up another sort of a myth, I think, in society. Because we have this kind of idea that marriage is this aspirational norm. A lots of people would say that the increase of single uh, people, the decline of marriage generally, poses a threat to the needs and wants of society, that singles are self-centered and they're pursuing themselves and their self-realization. Yet your research, I think, Bella, shows the exact opposite, that actually there is this thing called the greedy marriage syndrome. Right. Yes. And that goes back to one of the studies, among many others, that I described earlier, that when couples move in together, get married, they become all about themselves. They become more insular. Again, not all couples do this, but on average, that does happen. Whereas single people stay connected to more people in more different ways. They are also often the life of their communities. So they are more likely to participate in community groups and activities and public events. They enroll in more art and music classes. They go out to dinner more often. So in a way, they are the glue that is holding us together rather than, you know, the isolated couples that go off into their own little world or have their own little nuclear families and, and end up kind of disconnected. Again, not everyone, but in general. And then the selfish thing, this really gets to me. Really, single people are the selfish ones when the people who get married collect all the presents and they already have everything from, <laughs> from both people before they got married. But even more seriously, single people are more likely to exchange moral, emotional, and practical support with other people. Their parents may have pressured them to marry when they were young adults. But when those parents get older and need help, they are going to be grateful if they have kids grown kids who are single, because the grown kids who are single are more likely to be there for their parents when their parents need help. And it's not just their parents. Uh, a study in the UK showed that when people need sustained help for three months or more, it is the people who are single who are especially likely to show up at their doorsteps. So I think the rise of single people is good for society. And it is also good um, emotionally and psychologically in that it suggests, and I think it does to some extent, that more people are staying single, not because, you know, they couldn't find anyone or they have issues, but because 
they like being single. Single is how they live their best lives. And shattering stereotypes and myths about single people is important because it allows single people to grab on to the life that suits them best. It's kind of like when some of the biases against people who aren't homosexual started to fall. Of course, there's a long way to go, but that freed people to not marry someone just for show or because that's what you think you're supposed to do, but be involved with the person you care about the most or not be involved at all if that's what you like. So I think that what I'm trying to do, which is to destigmatize singlehood and celebrate it, is part of a big historical study of progress with a lot of backstepping toward more people getting to live their best lives. I want to point out that the conservative Catholic columnist for the New York Times, Ross Douthat, I was glad to see that he referred to marriage as that selfish institution in one of his columns. I was glad he was at least honest about that. And I'm in Frostburg, Maryland, because I'm going driving from my home in upstate New York to go to rural Kentucky to help out my 85-year-old sister who lives with her 86-year-old husband. And that's the role that... I have functioned in a lot of ways in this large extended family, and I've enjoyed doing it. It's a it's a pleasure. Um, E.O. Wilson wrote in his book on human nature, the Harvard uh, biologist, he was trying to think up some reason, some biological reason for uh, the persistence of homosexuality in cultures. And he decided that cultures that have solitary people in them are likelier to do better than cultures who don't because you have these solitary people who are selfless, committed to the well-being of the community as a whole, rather than the well-being of a particular couple or family. That's great. I love that. There's so many questions. I've got a list of my own, but with so many coming into the to the box here. This is a, is a good one for both of you. Does the joy of being single change as one grows older and perhaps feels the need to no longer be alone? There are actually like three big national studies in three different countries following people and asking them every year how happy they are, how satisfied they are with their single lives. And what they find is every year from age 20 to age 96, single people are on the happy end of the scale. And once they get to around midlife, you know, 40 or so, when everybody expects them to be coming sadder and lonelier, instead, they're getting more and more satisfied with their single lives. And the people who are not pining for a partner, the people, the single people who have committed to their single lives and invested in them are especially likely to be getting happier and happier with their single lives as they grow older. And I think it's interesting that the question you brought up, Mary, or the person who wrote it in the chat box, which is 
the, the assumption that it's the lifelong single people who are going to feel regrets at the end of their lives or think that, oh my gosh, I better find a partner. And in fact, studies that look at this systematically find that people who have stayed single um, are the least likely to be having a hard time in later life. So all singles and solitaries take heart. <laughs> Can you live a happy, satisfied life alone? Our guests are Bella de Paola, social psychologist and author of Single at Heart, and Fenton Johnson. His latest book is At the Centre of All Beauty, Solitude and the Creative Life. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course, all of you. So if you want to donate or sign up to our list, please visit the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope to see you all soon.